you that you give us the opportunity to run to the throne room and that we can enter into your presence at any moment and that we can glorify your name when we get to experience the joy and the presence that you offer us every day of our lives. God, this morning I ask that you bless this message and that you allow your people to hear your word God, we love you and we praise you and we thank you for all that you do. Thank you for your word. Amen. Morning. Everybody survived Easter? How wonderful was the rain that happened that day? Yes. Um, I would say that rain makes me want to snuggle up in my bed and watch movies all day, but that would be a lie because I I despise watching movies. Um, It's really sad because... I married the person who wants to watch a movie at the theater, every single movie that comes out, and I am the person that would rather never watch a movie again. It's kind of a a terrible thing. But what I really did was just want to cuddle up in my bed and take a nap because that's what we do on Sundays. Um, Who in here is a movie lover? Okay. So I'm gonna we're gonna do a little movie trivia this morning. I have three movie scenarios. And I want you to see if you can find the similarity. All right, first one. In the Lord of the Rings, the doors of Durin bar entrance into Moria under the Misty Mountains. Okay, number one. Number two, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. A mysterious wardrobe grants or prevents entrance into Narnia. And the third, in Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, there's a three-headed giant dog named Fluffy. That, entry, that blocks entry into the underground chamber. So your question is this. What do all three of these scenarios have in common? Some sort of door, okay? What I like about this is there is a key feature in each of these stories that shows us that there is a barrier between the characters and where they need to be. There is some sort of barrier. So you're probably thinking, why in the world is she telling me this? It, um, how does that even relate to the message that she's going to be talking about today? I can assure you I'm not going to be talking about any of these movies. In fact, I've never seen any of them. But <laughs> I'm just being honest because when I'm on the stage, I cannot lie today. Um, I can assure you I'm not going to be talking about any of them. That's not what the whole point is. But last week, we spent time and we celebrated our risen Savior. Okay? We heard the story of the road to the cross by Journey Kids. We watched in the internal dialogue of Brad as he reflected on the cross. We read scripture detailing why Jesus had to go through what he did. We took communion together as we remembered his sacrifice. We prayed together. We worshiped together. And the presence of God was in this place last week. And we're able to do all of that because of one detail in the cross. One detail that we didn't talk about last week. In the story of Israel, the most vivid instance of a barrier that separates us from something that we need was the finely woven, detailed curtain or veil hanging at the heart of the house of worship in his tabernacle. So what does the veil symbolize? Why was this veil there? What was it for? Today we're going to read a lot of scripture. I told Chia, I'm really sorry, we're going to have to keep 
about, but we're reading a lot of scripture today. But my words can't really detail this veil and what it's for and how it's the purpose of what we are using it and what it was called to be. I can't give you that. The best description is in the Bible. So you're going to read a lot of scripture. In Exodus 26, we find God giving Moses instructions on how he wants the tabernacle created. In verse 31 through 35, we find the Lord giving Moses specific instructions regarding the veil. It says, make a curtain of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and finely twisted linen with cherubim woven into it by a skilled worker. Hang it with gold hooks on four posts of acacia wood overlaid with gold and standing on four silver bases. We understand that this veil is made especially tough and beautiful. Unlike today's curtains or a veil, as we would think of it as in a wedding ceremony, it's built to last, doesn't easily tear or break. So we think of this veil in context. It's important for us to not conjure up modern day images of this beautiful bride with her long, glorious veil that could rip apart very, very easily. We need to think of it as a big, giant, thick. We don't know exactly how thick or how big it is, but there are theologians out there that say it could be up to 30 feet. It could be up to 60 feet high, 60 feet wide, four inches thick. It's a very thick, ornate veil that was huge and sturdy and strong. Now, the next few lines in Exodus tell us what the veil is for. It says, hang the curtain from the clasp and place the Ark of the Covenant law behind the curtain. The curtain will separate the holy place from the most holy place. Here's a picture of what the tabernacle could have looked like. You can see where the man is standing, you can see the curtain at the front. That's the first curtain. This is allowing people to enter into the holy place. This is where the worship happened. This is where the priests freely reigned and moved around. But the second curtain was the curtain that blocked the most holy place. From here, we understand that this veil separates the most holy place from the holy place. It serves as a door or an entry to the place where God's holy presence resides in a temple. You see, we have to understand that in the Old Testament, God's glory was kept in the most holy place. High priests were the only ones who could enter into the presence of God, and they were only then allowed one time a year, and they had to have they had to have blood of sacrifices to offer for people. Here's where we're going to start reading a lot of scripture. In Hebrews 9, we learn about worship in the earthly tabernacle. Now, the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. The tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered ark of the covenant. Now I'm going to move forward to verse 6. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room, the holy place, to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that was only once a year and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins 
the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations of high and perfect time of the new order. So we know God's glory resided in that place. High priests were not allowed to enter other than one time a year or they would die. God's glory stays inside that place, hidden by the veil. The veil separates man from God. And in that sense, it even covers God's glory and doesn't allow us to see him at any time. But we're going to keep reading. The blood of Christ changes. In verse 11, it says, But when Christ came as the high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, it's not part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who were ceremonially unclean to sanctify them so that they were outwardly clean. And we read this verse last week when we were talking about Jesus. In verse 14 it says, How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from the acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of the new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. I love how the Bible can make illustrations known and understandable to us. It says in verse 16, in the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it. Because a will is in force only when someone has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without the dying. When Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to all of the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll in all of the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law required that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of the blood, there was no forgiveness. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things the tabernacle, all the things that were inside of it, to be purified with these sacrifices. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. 
nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by sacrificing himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ has, was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time, but not to bear sin but to bring salvation to those who are waiting so the old way of doing things was to have the high priest enter the most holy place once a year with the blood of sacrificed animals to represent us being cleaned up from our sins but something happened that changed all of that when jesus went to the cross enduring pain and suffering for all of us the moment he took his last breath here on earth going to read about the death of Jesus in Matthew 16. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the world. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when some of those standing around heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge and filled it with wine vinegar and put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. And the rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. This is where we read in John that Jesus says, it is finished. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split. In Mark, it says, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. In Luke, it says, for the sun stopped shining and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. We are told that the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. No person was seen to be torn in two. And moreover, it was placed at an extremely high spot in the temple, indicating that no man could ever tear it anywhere and rip it apart like it was a piece of thin cloth. It was simply torn because Christ's work up until that time of Jesus, entry into the most holy place was reserved for the high priest. And that that was only once a year. And now suddenly, what was done from all eternity manifested into this miraculous event. As Jesus' body was torn in death, the veil was torn from top to bottom. We just read in Hebrews 9 that Jesus entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. Now we enter the same place through his precious blood. It made a way for us. God himself tore the veil in such a way that it could never be put back in place. Never again will anything, guilt, condemnation, unworthiness, addictions, sickness, poverty, anxiety. Never again were any of those things separate for us from his presence, from his love, from being able to boldly enter the throne room of grace. And I want you to hear me say that because that's what it is. It's a throne room of grace. Everything that would keep us from an intimate, fulfilling relationship 
the Lord was dealt with at the cross. We have access to him at all times on this earth. Now what? What do we do with that information? It's hard for us on earth to even grasp the power of the throne. In some ways, it might seem easy for us or easier for us to think about it in the old days where we knew exactly where God was. He was in the temple behind the veil protecting us. But now, he's with us everywhere we go. In every moment. And the ability for us to enter into his presence is almost magic. There's not a barrier blocking us other than our own doubts and fears. I promise you, once you allow yourself to enter into the throne room, to enter into the full presence of God, you never want to leave. One of the hardest parts about being a Christian is the unknown. I know I'm going to meet Jesus face to face. I know I will join him in heaven one day. I know I will worship him for all of eternity. But I don't know what that's going to look like. I have read Revelation so many times. It's one of my favorite books. People tell me I'm strange, but I love it so much. I'd love to tell you that I have a clear picture of what life in heaven will be like or what all those beautiful, ornate, sometimes scary visuals mean. But I don't. But I do know this. In Revelation 4, it tells us about the throne room in heaven, where the words, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come, is spoken over and over and over again, day Revelation 5 tells us about the lamb that was slain. And where John hears in verse 11, the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000, they encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders and in a loud voice they were saying, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then John hears every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever. Allowing yourself to enter into the throne room is one of the greatest gifts God gives us to experience him and his presence in a way that nobody can explain for you. No one can tell you what it's like. You allow yourself to be a part of it. And the greatest gift we were ever given was that moment when that veil was torn in two and we don't have to let some priest um, bring sacrifices or turn in sacrifices for our sins. We have one-on-one contact and direct access to our Father. And all we have to do this morning I'm going to pray and we have people who are praying. Jackie, come forward. 
haven't made that, I asked last week, if you are a person, do you know God the Father with an intimate relationship with him through Jesus? And if you don't know that, your heart's not right. The gift of the Father, the gift of Jesus, the ability to enter his presence is the greatest gift you will ever Continue to worship some of these songs that are beautifully laid directly from the heart of God. Father, today we praise you. God, we thank you for Jesus, for the life you lived on this earth, for the death he so willingly gave on the cross to save us and to allow us direct access to you forever and ever. God, I ask that you make your presence known this morning in this place. That you allow your people to encounter you. 